Hey, good evening. It's good to see you guys. Happy Labor Day. Uh, my, if you're new, my name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to Redemption Church. Uh, just a little bit about Redemption. We're one church of multiple congregations. And so what that means is we have a campus in Arcadia, a campus in Gateway, Gilbert, and here in Tempe. Um, if you want to know more about the church and how you can get connected, best thing that you can do is take that information card that's in the seat in front of you, fill out your name, your email address, any questions you have, or if you want to get involved in a redemption community, uh, which are our smaller gathering of people that meet in various places and times, uh, fill that out and just check that, check that circle. And later during the time of response, you have an opportunity to drop that off in the offering boxes. Um, just a few announcements that I have for us this evening. One, this upcoming Wednesday is the first Wednesday of the month, and so we are going to have first Wednesdays. Um, we've been promoting this for the past few weeks. Uh, Jim Skillen will be in town from Washington, D.C. Um, if you don't know who Jim Skillen is, I'm just going to tell you it'll be worth your time to be here from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. This Wednesday, there will be food. Uh, so come early, come on time, and so we can eat and get some seats and get everybody situated in the room. We'll have about 45 minutes to an hour of teaching as well as um, Q&A. And so we'll be able to text in any questions that you have. And the topic is politics. And so this is the perfect time for us to have that conversation. Um, the second announcement that I have is a week from this Tuesday, so September 11th, we were having a men's conference at the Gilbert campus. Um, John Bryson, who is a pastor at a church out in Memphis, uh, is a part of the church planning network that we're a part of, will be in town. Um, that is going to be from 7 to 9. It's free, and it's at the Gilbert campus. And so if you can remember what I said last week, we want all of the guys to be there. Um, let's try to get there at 655. Um, and, and beat everybody to the chairs. And so all the Gilbert and Gateway guys and Arcadia guys have to stand up and we'll have the chairs and eat all the free whatever they put out there for us. It'll be free. All right. And so I just want to stress that. And so we're going to make sure we're there that September 11th, 7 p.m. Uh, to 9 p.m. I know someone asked, is it at 7 a.m.? And it's like, we do nothing at 7 a.m. So yeah, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Um, well, I think that's it for our, for our announcements. If you want information about the dodgeball tournament, uh, just go to the Facebook page uh, where you can sign up, Teams of Six. I think that's already filling up, and so uh, make sure that you get on top of that. Um, this morning, I had the opportunity. I wasn't here um, at Redemption. In fact, I just got here at uh, the Tempe campus. Uh, I decided, we decided, myself and Luke Simmons, to switch. Luke Simmons is a lead pastor at the Gateway campus, and so I went out to Gateway and preached with him, and um, we invited Luke Simmons to come out here. Um, and the whole purpose was, and a couple things, one of the things that we feel like at both of our campus that we haven't done the greatest of job at doing, meaning me and him, is promoting redemption wide, that there's other things that are happening. And then the other thing is, we wanted to say, how about you come to my campus and preach a message that I would want to preach, and then I can go to your campus and preach a message that maybe you would want me to preach. And so I went there today, and we talked about all of life being all for Jesus, and we talked about how not all uh, Christians are Republicans, and uh, I got kicked out of there. So I'm glad to be back over here with you guys in Tempe. No, it was a great time. Uh, it was fun for me to get over there and uh, spend some time. And so now um, Luke's going to come and teach, and Luke's going to talk to us about how to become more welcoming. And so here's, here's what I told Luke to do, to get in our grill. So if you walk away and say, this new guy came in and he yelled at me, just know that was all me, all right? But just be mad at him. But that was all me, all right? So would you guys put your hands together and would you guys welcome, join me in welcoming Luke Simmons? Thanks, brother. I'm going I'm to actually stay up here for a while. I know this okay. is not planned, but I'm going to ask you a few questions when I got this mic. Oh, all, all right. right. One, why don't you, uh, there, there's a big game coming up, coming up this Saturday. <laughs> Luke Simmons is. played baseball at University of Illinois, and they're playing uh, the Sun Devils this Saturday. And so before the church, we're not, we're not a gambling people, but um, 
Would you be willing right now to, let's just say we place a bet that if the Sun Devils win, then you and your wife have to cook dinner. And I would say let's go to your house, but it's far. Um, and you guys cook dinner and bring it over to my house. And then if the Sun Devils so happen to lose, um, you know. Do you have same. directions to my house? I can get directions to your house. Then it's on, man. All right. You guys got it, right? They don't, guys, they don't you know, care. You guys don't look so excited. There's a lot of align out there. So, hey, enjoy. Cool. Well, good to see you guys. How are we doing? Doing all right? It's an honor to be here. I think the last time that I preached uh, here for this congregation, I think you were still Praxis Church. A bunch of you weren't there. A bunch of you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. Um, but I, one of the cross points uh, was the last time I was with you guys. And it's great to great to be back. Um, let me tell you just a couple things about myself and... Uh, Actually, the whole night's going to be about myself, listen in. No, just kidding. Um, I am uh, married. I've been married for 10 years to Molly and uh, and have two little girls. Uh, Abby is six and Caitlin is three. Uh, they're beautiful and most of the time fairly well behaved. And uh, and we love them a lot. Uh, we live in Queen Creek, the gateway. That's where the Gateway Campus is. Any of you who are familiar with the ASU Polytechnic Campus, it's just south of there, on Pecos Road, right by uh, right by right in Queen Creek. And so that's where we live. Um, there isn't a lot to do there, so it's really nice to come to a place like this where they have you know restaurants besides Chipotle and McDonald's and everything else that you've ever been to. Um, so so it's good to be here. I'll, I'll also tell you this: um, I preach with a towel. Okay, because I get sweaty. And it's just more awkward if I don't have one. So I'm just going to just feel like, gosh, that's just gross. Yeah, I know. It's, it's hot up here. I can't really help it. Um, and I do bring greetings from Gateway. Uh, God is doing a great work in our church uh, across the valley, but in our Gateway congregation where I get to be part of uh, leading that, just really encouraged by what the Lord is doing. We've continued to grow throughout the summer. Uh, back to school has hit. And uh, just like you guys, we've had record numbers of people, uh, many new people, many people disconnected from church previously that are starting to come, other people moving from out of town. And uh, God is doing a great work. We have two services. Is there. We're right about 700 people and uh, looking at adding a third service. And so God is on the move here and there, and, uh, and, and I'm thankful for that. So why don't we pray together, and then uh, we'll dive into this tonight. Uh, Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have um, to come and to hear your word. And God, I pray that tonight we would hear from you. God, I pray that we would hear from you in all the truth that you would tell us. And God, I pray that we would hear from you in your heart. God, the way that you would tell us. So God, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are receptive to respond to your word. Give us eyes to see the beauty of Jesus and his love for us. We pray that in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, one of the things that I really like to do, I kind of have this idea that anything undercover to me is very interesting. We have some police officers in our church, and I'm always asking them kind of whenever they go undercover what that's like. I'm really intrigued by the show Undercover Boss, if you've seen that. Um, I love the idea of secret shoppers. You know what secret shoppers are? You can get jobs doing this where they'll pay you to go to Fry's or to go to Safeway or to go to some place. And then, and then like rate what the experience was like and they get feedback. And it's just, I, I'm always intrigued by that stuff. And I was actually a secret shopper here last week. You didn't know it, but I was here. I was sitting right over there. I'll tell you about that experience in a minute. But one of my first secret shopping experiences was when I was a seventh grader. My mom taught eighth grade. 
And there was one particular time, we were in different school districts, and so there was a, a time when I didn't have school and my parents did have school. And so I don't know how we came up with this idea, but we came up with the idea, what if I posed as a new eighth grade student in her class and could find out sort of what the kids were really like? And so that's what we did. So again, brilliant idea. She could probably get fired for that if anyone knew that that happened, but... But, but so I show up and, and they go, she goes, hi, we've got a new student today. His name's Luke. He's, you know, welcome him. And, and I, and I don't know if you've, I mean, you've had that experience being a new person somewhere. That's an intimidating experience. That's tough on the first day of school. Um, and, and this was like middle of the year. Everyone kind of knew everyone in this class and whatever. And, uh, it was very interesting to get the perspective of what the students really thought about my mom. And, uh, a lot of that I wasn't really able to share with her later. But I remember one particular girl I sat next to, and I don't know where you are in eighth grade, 13, 14, and she sat next to me and, and said, uh, so what do, you, what do you do? What do you like to do? And I said, oh, I don't know. She said, well, do you, do you drink? I said, no, 13. <laughs> well, do you do drugs? No. Well, do you sleep around? No. Well, what do you do? And uh, so that was an interesting experience. You should have seen her face at the end of the day when the big reveal happened. And my mom said, after, actually, we told you Luke was a new student. In reality, he's my son. She wasn't very uh, happy. That girl wasn't very happy. And so I, last week I came, I had taken someone to the airport and came here and just thought, you know what, I'm just going to blend in, try to be a regular guy, had a t-shirt and shorts and just looking... Not as cool as you guys, but, but looking like I was trying to fit in here. And, um, and a girl sat down and asked me those same questions. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That'd be something, wouldn't it? I, I share that story because of what I said earlier. It, it's hard to be... Uh, in a new place. There are certain places that are just inherently more intimidating, right? So first day of school is like that. Uh, we've discussed that. The, the gym is a place for many people that's an intimidating place to go. Now, if you're in great shape and you like the gym, it's not intimidating for you. But if you're kind of trying to get into it, or it, it's, it's an intimidating place. Everyone there looks like they know what they're doing. They have all the clothes. They have all, right? It's, it's, a, it's an intimidating place. Court. Is an intimidating place to go. I've heard. No. I mean, I've been to court. I remember having to go. And even, I, I wasn't, I didn't do anything wrong. I was testifying. And when we got hit by a rickshaw down at the, at the ball game, got, you know, T-boned by a rickshaw. And I had to go testify against them. And, and just going there, it's just, it's a place where you sense I don't have any power here. I don't know what to expect. It's a scary place. There's a widow in our church. She's in her 70s. Her name's Joanne. And she told me the other day, you know what's a really intimidating place? All these dating websites. She's out there on the prowl again. <laughs> and certain, certain websites apparently are just hard to use and are more intimidating. And, you know? and, and he, here's what I think. There is not a place on earth that's more intimidating to go than church. Church is a scary place to go. Now, once you're in it, and if you share the beliefs of a particular church, and if you have friends there, then it's not intimidating. It's really more like family. But until that happens, it's a terrifying place 
to be. Even if you would already consider yourself a Christian, when you come here for the first time, and I met people this morning, and I've met people this evening who are here for the first time, and that's a, that's a scary thing. And you sort of look around and you assume that everyone else knows each other, even though the reality is they don't. But it feels like that, and you just don't know what to expect, and the, the band is new to you, and the speaker's new to you, and then you find out it's a guy from somewhere else, and you don't even know where that is, and, right, and that's intimidating. But, but imagine if, if, if you're not even really into Christianity, or you're just exploring it, or God has started to do something in your life, and you go, maybe I should check this out. That's an intimidating place. I've talked to people who said, I'd like to go to church, but I'm afraid that if I step in the doors, the building will collapse because of God's judgment on what I've done. It's a terrifying thing. I got this email a few weeks ago um, on like a Friday or Saturday from somebody interested in our church. And let me just read to you what this email said. Gentleman wrote, a friend of mine has introduced and encouraged me to attend one of your services, although her family attends at a different location. Sadly, I've been away from the church for so many years, always questioning my belief or lack thereof. I've hit a point in my life where I realize something is missing, and I'm searching for answers. With the recent passing of my younger brother, I hope that I will be able to find my faith and somehow come to peace with all that has happened in life. I'm not sure what to expect by coming. Could you give me a little insight as to what to expect, where to go, etc.? Also, I have two children who will be joining me, and I notice that you have a children's ministry that they can attend. I love that email. I love that for a couple reasons. One is it just reminds me how special this multi-congregational thing that we call Redemption Church is. The idea that this person going through crisis is invited to a church and has the opportunity to be invited by someone that doesn't even go where they go. That's a very cool thing. I'm also encouraged by this because it reminds me that God uses crisis to change us and to grow us and to get a hold of our lives. Some of you, that's your story. You were going through life and everything seemed great. And then God dropped a boulder in your life. And and you went, I'm not everything I thought. I do not have all the answers I thought I had. I need some help. And, And maybe you turned to some friends who told you about Jesus and invited you to a place like this. So I love that email for those reasons, but I I love it because it, it, it's, it shows a vulnerability of someone who's going, it's been decades, and I'm going through a hard time, and I'm scared to come. Can you tell me what it's going to be like? And so I replied to him, I said, okay, well, here's kind of what a service generally is like, and, and here's how you can check in your kids, and it's secure, and, and da, da, da. I kind of went through that whole thing. Um, and, then I, and then I put in there, I think you'll find that our people are really friendly and welcoming. <laughs> and that's the moment as a pastor when you say something like that, that you kind of are crossing your fingers. Like, I can tell you how to check in. I can tell you where to go. But I can't promise you that anyone will be friendly to you. I hope they will be. What if that man came here? With all those same fears, all those same concerns, would he find this to be a welcoming and friendly place? Here's what I know. And I know this because I came last week. 
I know that this is a place, and most churches are like this. I'm not uniquely picking on Redemption Church Tempe. And if you came at any point as a secret shopper to Gateway, you might find the exact same thing. But what I found was that I sat down. I came early, right? The people at the door greeted me because they had a greeter tag on. And, and I sat down, and uh, that was pretty much it. A couple of people that I knew from other things said hi, but, but no one... I didn't know, came over and said, hey, how's it going? I haven't seen you here before. What's your name? Let me introduce themselves. That didn't happen. And you go, oh, well, well, you didn't introduce yourself to anyone else. Well, no. I was the secret shopper. (laughs) I'm the guy who's going through a crisis, who showed up at church and doesn't know what to expect. You expect me to get, I mean, it's all I can do to be here. I need someone to welcome and and love me. And so, so... that may make you feel really bad. I, and you go, oh, I'm an introvert and I'm not really like that. We'll talk about that through the course of tonight. But, but here's the other thing I know. And this is from talking to Ricardo and, and talking to the other leaders. Remember, Ricardo asked me specifically to address this kind of issue. One of the things that Ricardo said that I found so insightful was he said, if you get around Redemption Tempe and if you get in a redemption community, those are the smaller groups of 10, 20 ish people that meet throughout the week and do life together. He said, if you get into one of those communities, there is probably thicker and deeper and richer and more meaningful community happening in the RCs at Tempe than any other campus. Like when you get in there, you develop real friendships and people really care for each other and really people really serve each other and they do life together. But it's very hard to crack the inner circle of those groups. It's very hard to get in. Once you're in, it's great. It's life-changing. It's extraordinary, but it's hard to get in. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's systems. I don't know if that's, I don't know exactly, but some of it must have to do with, with our approach. And all of us have this approach, especially once we become insiders in a church, we have this approach that we just think about me and here's my chance to get to know connect with the people I already know, and we lose entirely the perspective that dozens of people have every week when they come. You know that last Sunday at Redemption Tempe, there were only 50 fewer people than there were on Easter. Right? Easter, everyone comes, right? You had almost that many people here last week. So what that tells me is that God is bringing people. God is doing something. And not all of those people are coming from other churches. That's, that's not that at all. God is working in a powerful way. What are they going to experience? See, this really matters. Some of you, you're new. You're recent here today. And you're going, man, I'm getting all kinds of a dose into whatever this church is supposed to be. And, and, and what you want, if you're new here, if this is your first time, you, you would at least like some place... That, that feels welcoming and feels comfortable. And you already maybe feel concerned enough and, and judged enough. You don't need more. Here's the other reason this matters is Redemption Tempe, you're entering a new phase of life as a church. It, you're growing up. Some of you literally. But but as a church, right, this is your building. This is your base camp for ministry. This is your place in this city, right? There's a new level of ownership that you're embracing and that you're going to be called to embrace over the next year. And you need to do that. And part of that is that when you own a home and you invite guests to it, you welcome them, right? You don't ever have a party and hear the doorbell ring and just hope people will let themselves in. 
You invite them in. You take their jacket. You get them a drink. You say hello. And so this is important. Now, some of you will say, well, you know what? I'm just kind of passing through here. I'm a student. Uh, I envision moving in a couple years. I don't think this is really my home. What, what difference does this make? I mean, I'm not going to be an owner like that. I'm just here for a couple of times. I want a church where I can grow. And, but that, that's not me. Here's, here's why this matters for you. You are part of shaping one of the most important things in any church. You are part of shaping the culture. You know, every group of people has a culture, right? Your family has a culture, good or bad. Uh, your work has a culture. If you've played on a team, there's a culture. And, and, and culture is something that is it's felt. It's experienced. It's not always explained, right? It's not always on you know values on a wall or on a banner or in a pamphlet. It's just kind of the vibe you get, the feeling of here's what's actually important to people. And you have the opportunity to shape that in a way that honors Christ and that's consistent with what Jesus calls and expects his people to. What an incredible opportunity. And don't underestimate the power of culture. One of my favorite stories about culture involves some work that some sociologists did. Uh, to try to figure out how human beings related in groups and what they did and culture and these things. So inevitably, if you want to study human beings, what you should really do is study monkeys. Right? I mean, that makes sense. Uh, so that's what they did. They got a group of monkeys together. And anytime you, I start to hear that, I go, okay, where's this going? But here's what they did. They got a group of monkeys in a room, and there's a pole in the room with bananas at the top of the pole. And they get these four or five or six monkeys in the room. And the monkeys see the bananas. What do you think they do? They charge as hard as they can up that pole to get those bananas, right? They're clawing and they're scratching. They're fighting each other to get to the bananas. And so they put the monkeys in the room and do this exercise a number of times. And then they change it. Then what they do is they rig it in such a way that when you get to the monkeys, it activates a lever that dumps water on you. When, when the monkey gets to the bananas, it dumps water on the monkey. And so they do that a couple times, and they start to realize, okay, this isn't, this isn't a good thing. We're not going for the monkeys, or I keep saying monkeys, we're not going for the bananas. So they put the monkeys in the room, monkeys see the bananas, they don't go for it anymore. Well, then it gets interesting. They take out one of these original monkeys, they've been through the whole experience, they take him out and they put a new monkey in. And the new monkey looks at the pole, sees the bananas, what do you think he does? He goes for it, right? He is getting those bananas. And this time the other monkeys are clawing and scratching him not to beat him to the bananas, but to save him from the bananas. They know he's going to get wet. They try to save him. And so the, the, the experimenters, what they do with this is they follow this, this process a number of times. They take out an old monkey, put in a new one. Take out an old one, put in a new one. And every time it goes through this process, the new monkey comes in, sees the bananas, goes for him, and they try to stop him. Until eventually three or four generations now of all new monkeys, they put a new one in, and the new monkey comes in, looks at the pole, sees the bananas, and doesn't even go for them. And what the researchers concluded is that there was a culture, unspoken, of course, talking monkeys. <laughs> there was a culture understood that said, "Hey, hey round here, we don't go for the we don't go for the bananas." 
right? The, the new, new monkey hadn't been part of anything, goes in and just knows we don't do that here, right? And you've been there in your job. You've been there in your family where it's like, why don't we, we just don't do that here. And you're not allowed to talk about it and you're not allowed to, you know what that is? That's culture. And what you have the opportunity to do, even if you're just here for a season, if, even if you're just passing through, you have the opportunity to shape a culture. To shape a culture that is committed to the thing that the Bible says is the most central command, love. You have the opportunity to shape a culture of love, of sacrificial, generous, big-hearted, welcoming Christ-like love. You have the opportunity to shape and create that culture. And this is as important now as ever for you as a church. So here's where I want to go. I know that's a long introduction, but I want to look tonight at love. You've been looking at the four G's, right? Uh, God is great and gracious and glorious and good. Uh, You've looked at that. For us, that was a great series. I hope it was for you as well. So you've looked at the four G's over the last few weeks. Tonight, we're just going to do one message on the four C's. Okay, the four C's of love. So here's what they are if you want to kind of follow along. Uh, The four C's of love. Number one, the call to love. Number two, the cost of love. Number three, the competition of love. And number four, the culmination. The call, the cost, the competition, the culmination. Let's look first at the call to love. This is in the scripture. Go ahead and open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. And uh, if you need a Bible tonight, go ahead and raise your hand. These guys will get you a Bible. Uh, You'll want one as as we follow along through the scripture. Just put your hand up and these guys will find you. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. And you can turn to verses uh, 43 through 48 is where we're going to look. If you get one of these uh, paperback Bibles... And if you don't have a Bible, it's yours to keep. It's our gift to you. Um, if you have a Bible at home and you just forgot it, then go ahead and leave it on the shelf as you leave uh, so that someone else can continue to use it. If you use that Bible tonight, you're on page 525 is, is where Matthew 5.43 is. And as you're turning there, uh, this is right in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' famous uh, sermon about what it was to be a follower of his and, and the difference specifically between what people thought the Old Testament taught and what Jesus truly came to teach. And so all throughout, especially chapter five, Jesus is saying, you've heard this. You've, in your, in your uh, sense of what the religious law meant, you've heard this, but I'm saying to you, it actually goes deeper than you ever thought. And so we pick up where Jesus is talking about love in verse 43. You there? Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, perhaps you've heard this idea of love your enemies. Perhaps you've heard that so many times that it's, it's lost its punch to you. But, but for for these people that were hearing Jesus speak, this was radical. This was revolutionary. This was unlike anything they'd ever heard. What they had heard was, if someone whacks you, whack them back. That's fine. That's justice. God's just. You can do that. And Jesus is saying, listen, you've heard that, but I'm calling you to love. Your neighbor, pray for the one who persecutes you. Why? 
What's Jesus' rationale? Well, he gives it in verse 45 because that reflects that you're a son, you're a daughter of your Father in heaven. God is the one who sends rain on the just and the unjust, the good and the evil. And so if God loves the good and the wicked, if they experience at least some measure of his grace and love, then then you should give love even to your enemies. And then Jesus tightens the screws even more. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Tax collectors were the most hated people around. He's saying that anyone can love the people that love them back. You, like, you don't get a medal for that. No one's like, wow, you're so loving. You love all the people that already love you. That, no, that's not impressive, Jesus says. Anyone can do that. And then he shows us even more specifically, a very specific form of what it is to love. And it's surprising how specific this is, right? We think of love your enemies, and I don't know what comes to your mind, but I think of kind of these grand things and and big decisive moments where you're going to show, like you have a chance to show this person once and for all, I love you. And and I, I, but the reality is that's not how most of life is. Most of life is in the details. So Jesus says, if you want to love, here's a detail of how you love, verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? This word greet means to engage in welcoming somebody, a hospital or a hospitable recognition of another person. This is a handshake. This is a hug. This is, in other cultures, a, a, a kiss. This is even the same word that's used in the scriptures when it talks about greet one another with a holy kiss. And some of you creepy single guys would like to bring that back in the church. And we're not gonna, we're not going there. Be hospitable, but not that kind of hospitable. And so isn't it interesting here that, right, Jesus is talking about this big grand idea and it's hard to get our arms around, but we can get our arms around this. Jesus says it, your love comes through even in who you and how you greet, how you welcome. Jesus here is not giving any kind of prescription on whether you should hug or shake hands or fist bump or he doesn't care. It's about the heart. And what he's saying is if, if you can only greet those who already know and love you, big deal. You're called to much, much more than that. It's a tremendously high standard. And, and so I want to back this up just a little bit. Because if we want to have any chance at loving our enemy, we've got to be able to love our neighbor, right? I mean, if we just think about it as it relates to to the topic and what we're kind of looking at tonight of welcoming and creating a a loving and and hospitable community here in this church, right? Like 101 is greet people at church. Like that's friendly ground, right? This is a home game. Like if you can't be friendly here, you got no chance being friendly out there. If you can't love here, you can't love out there, right? So this is at least the training wheels, right? This is at least where we begin to go. This is neighbors. Like at least you're loving neighbors. You don't even have to go to enemies yet here. Now, listen, I don't want to reduce this passage to just be nice at church. Okay. Do you get that? You get that? I'm not saying that that's the, the, the culmination of Jesus saying, love your enemies is greet people at church. 
No, if that's what you're hearing, you, you, you didn't hear it right. What I'm saying is if you can't greet people at church, you, there's no chance you're going to be able to forgive your stepdad who mistreated you. You got no, you got no shot. So, so if we're going to love our enemies, we've got to first love our neighbors. And that's where all of us begin to go, well, okay, man, you're, you're talking about a lot of stuff that I just don't feel that comfortable with, and I'm not sure that fits me, and I'm more of an introvert, and I, you know, and it's not really my job. I mean, we have people with lanyards out there. Isn't that their job? Isn't that what they're supposed to do? And, and why, why do I need to do this? And this, do you have any idea how uncomfortable this would make me? And I just, I'm not sure this is my job. You, you know what you're asking? You're asking the question that, uh, that a man asked Jesus in Luke chapter 10. Who's my neighbor? See, in Luke chapter 10, and you can turn there if you want, in uh, verses 25 through 37, it's page 564 if you have one of the paperback Bibles. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus encounters a lawyer, and not a lawyer like we think of, you know, an ambulance chasing divorce lawyer. This is a, like an expert in the law, more like a seminary professor, someone who had studied the Old Testament scripture. And it says in Luke chapter 10 that this man wanted to put Jesus to the test. And so he asked Jesus, Jesus, what, uh, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus says, well, you tell me. You're the expert. What do you think? And he says, well, love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you got it, man. That's exactly right. And then it says that the man, verse 29, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? What this man is doing is what you and I are prone to do. Jesus gives a big lofty, difficult command, and we go, is there like a minimum I could do and still count? That's what it means, trying to justify himself, trying to go, no, I'm, I'm really okay. Okay, well, okay, well then who's my neighbor? Right? It's a very childish way to, to think. And yet that's how we think when we're convicted. We want to get out from under it, and so we try to explain it away. And so Jesus tells a story says there was a man, and he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on the way, he encountered some robbers, and they stole what he had and beat him up and basically left him for dead. And then along came a priest, and a Levite, two religious men, and they came one after another, and they saw him, and they saw him in his distress and in his despair, and instead of meeting his needs, they crossed over to the other side out of fear that they too might face the same fate that this man had faced. And then along comes a Samaritan. Now the Samaritans were kind of the arch enemy of a Jew. Samaritans were thought of as dirty. They were thought of as a problem. They were thought of as the cause of all the social ills. And along comes the Samaritan. And this is why there's hospitals called Good Samaritan. They're named after this guy. This guy comes along and, and takes his time and takes his money and takes his medicine and he balms the man up and he takes him to an inn and he gets him a room and he makes sure that there's enough money that he'll be able to stay there as long as he needs and he takes care of him. Here, if we put it in our day, you know what the story Jesus told is? He said, imagine you're running along Tempe Town Lake one evening. It's hot outside. You go at night. And when you get down by the railroad tracks, someone jumps out and mugs you and beats you up and takes your iPhone and takes any money you have and leaves you there. And you're unconscious. 
But you wake up the next morning, and it's a Saturday morning, and you see a, a priest out for a walk. He's praying as he goes, and he's playing with the rosary. And he sees you, but he kind of looks away and keeps walking. And then you see a small group of people, a, a redemption community from a local evangelical church. And they're out at the park, and they're playing guitar and doing Bible study and singing worship songs, but looking over and going, what's wrong with that person? And they never do anything. And then along comes an illegal immigrant. And he doesn't even speak English. But he sees you there. And he has compassion on you. And he uses his own money to check you into the Tempe Palms. And to make sure that you have all the care that you need. That's the story. And isn't it interesting that even in this story, the hero of the story is not who you'd think. Right? If Jesus had said, hey, a fancy lawyer, you think you're so great. You're the hero of the story. He would have only puffed up his pride. But instead, Jesus says, no, the hero of the story is anybody who sees someone in need and gives them in that moment what they would want if they were in the same position. You get that? That's what a neighbor is. Jesus concludes the story. He says, who do you think was the neighbor? And the guy says, well, the one who offered compassion. He can't even bring himself to say, the Samaritan is the one that cared this is a high call of love do you get this yeah i mean are you feeling you feeling a little bit burdened by that like man god is calling me to something that feels impossible to love someone the the exact way that i would hope to be loved if it were me it's a high calling and it's also costly so number two, the, the cost of love. We've looked at the call to love. Now the cost of love. We need to understand, and I think we see this in this passage, that all real, life-changing, life-giving love is substitutionary sacrifice. All life-giving love is substitutionary sacrifice. It's taking the place of another person. Taking what they have and giving what you have. It's substitution. So let me give you some examples of this. My daughters are very much into Beauty and the Beast. Have any of you seen the Beauty and the Beast? Any of you still remember that at all, right? The Beauty of the Beast is the gospel, according to Disney. <laughs> it's, sh- it's amazing. And, and in the story, part of the reason it's such a compelling story is that Belle's father is captured by this awful beast. And he's going to be there for her whole life. And she says, put me in prison instead so that he can be free. She substitutes herself for him. And it's that kind of love that she loves the beast with. And he is given really literally a new heart. It's incredible. Perhaps you've seen or read The Hunger Games. The the, the point at which Katniss's sister is drawn to go into these games where she will surely be killed because she's weaker and younger. And Katniss stands up and says, I volunteer! <laughs> do, you know, do you know why that's so compelling? Well, that was a pretty good rendition too, I think. <laughs> The reason that's so compelling, that's real, that's substitutionary sacrifice. 
Me going in your place. Listen, think about people that are difficult to love. People that are draining to love. Right? There's people, and and all of us are these people at times. It's easier to see it than others. But there's people we we kind of know and spend time with and we go, man, be with them. I just leave and I'm so exhausted. I mean, they're just so draining. And I just so... Yeah, that's what it is to love. If someone comes to you and they're burdened and they're empty and they just, nothing can ever fill them and you pour yourself out to try to fill them, you will inevitably get drained. And that's real love. Parents, those of you who are parents, it's probably not many, but you know that parenting is substitutionary sacrifice. Think about what you do as a parent. Being a parent is psycho, if you think about it. You abandon all your independence. You give up all these ideas and all these dreams and all these I want to travel and all these things, right? You you just abandon that. You spend the majority of your life reading stupid books (laughs) out loud. They make you yawn the whole time and they're just dumb. And you're just like, I'm getting dumber reading this. I I hope my kid's getting smarter because I'm getting dumber. Your kid gets sick. And so you care for them. You come alongside him or her. And what inevitably happens? You get sick. You, to make them well, take on their sickness. That's what love is. And so you make this investment and you make this sacrifice and you do it in the hopes that someday your child will grow up and be well-adjusted and fine. Right? And so here's what you do. You become a mess so that they won't be. Or, listen, there's a lot of parents who aren't willing to make that sacrifice. Some of you, and this breaks my heart, some of you had parents that didn't make that sacrifice. So much of the mess you're working through is that. God calls us to truly love You see it in the story of the Good Samaritan. Look at all that he sacrifices. He sacrifices a huge amount of time. He sacrifices money. He sacrifices resources. He sacrifices his own safety, right? Because he could get beat up by these same people that mug this man. He sacrifices his reputation because his people, the Samaritans, could say, what are you doing helping that guy out? You're a sellout. How dare you do that? He risks everything. See, love is a decision to die to yourself. What if every day, but what if especially every Sunday, you came to church and said, Lord, give me a chance to die to myself today. Do you have any idea what kind of radically loving community this would be? See, that's what, listen, that's what you do when you go get in communities and you really love each other as well as you do. So, so what if you took that, not just to those who love you, but everywhere else? Think of the power of that. There's a call to love. There's a cost of love. But there's a competition of love. There's a competition of love. There's things that make this difficult. There's things that make it difficult on a Sunday, for instance, if we're going to keep it sort of to that, and and we'll expand beyond that. But but there's things that make it difficult. Like, for instance, um, the lobby is small. And and everything's gray. And... (laughs) i got to be careful here. I'm going to serve all kinds of discontent. I don't want to do that for you, Ricardo. But 
right? And this whole building is just interesting, right? It's all in a hexagon or whatever this is. And, and there's, right, there's not any real natural gathering spots. And, and yet, listen, praise God that he's given you this building. Amen? I mean, th- there are going to be a thousand or more people that are here. This, and praise the Lord that there's a place to do that. There are so few places in this community to do that. So we'll take it if it's imperfect. But, but if you were going to design a space, you go, let's create something that's really welcoming. You wouldn't design this. And so that's something to overcome. And, and, and listen, if you want to take this call seriously to own this church and to love the people God brings here, you overcome that. You're creative. Figure out a way to do that. And so there's things like that. Um, there's things like personality, right? Personality is just tough. Uh, half of us or more are introverts. We all imagine that Jesus was probably an extrovert. So it's very hard to be in a church if you're introverted. And a message like this leaves you feeling really like, oh, gosh, what do I do? How about this? Love the people that you encounter as well as you can. Don't, don't work the room. Don't feel like I gotta, I gotta glad hand the high rollers. I gotta, but, but find one person, find one person and talk to them. There's other obstacles, other competition, other, right? The, one is we, we think I'm the only person, like everyone else knows each other. Well, no, there's a good chance that you and the other person that are both looking there kind of awkwardly don't know each other. Say hi. So, so there's that sort of superficial and, and, and not that it's not real. It's just, that's not the deepest thing. The, the real competition is something else. What's the opposite of love? Indifference. A lot of times we think hate. The opposite of love is not hate. It's selfishness. It's selfishness. See, see, love, if love is substitutionary sacrifice, being willing to risk everything for the sake of someone else's good, then selfishness is the opposite of that. It's saying, I exist for me, for what I want, for what I can get. The opposite of love isn't hate, it's selfishness. And so the competition for love is selfishness. And I think there's a, a unique sort of brand of this potentially here at Tempe. And, I, and I'm not a... a I'm not an expert, but I do come with possibly some fresh eyes. And I think one of the challenges you face, and I know you guys have been trying to overcome this for some time, and, and so hopefully that's happening. But, but I think one of the challenges you face is you guys are really cool. I mean, you're just, and you don't even try. That's how you know you're cool. You don't even try to be cool. You're just cool. Some of you try, and that's not cool. But I mean, the band, are, are they great? I mean, they're great. And, and they don't even try to be cool and they're cool. And, and, and there's different pockets of cool, right? Like there's hipster cool, which is like, well, we're not trying to be cool. But we're, I don't even know how you think. <laughs> but you're cool. And then there's jock cool, right? And Ricardo's like, lead, lead guy for that. And he doesn't even try to be cool. He's just, I mean, he's cool. And, and there's nerd cool. Even the nerds and geeks and the tech people, like you guys are the coolest of those people that exist, right? And so, and the reason I, and I don't want to make too much, and I'm, I'm having some fun with that, but at some point, cool and love collide. Because cool 
even if you're not working really hard to, to be it, whatever effort you're putting into maintaining that, whatever kind of cool you're trying to be, it, it's about your reputation. It's about what other people think. It's about their approval. It, and that will inherently block you from love. So we have a choice to make. Will I, will I, and listen, if you're just, you can't help it, but, but whatever we're doing to, to maintain that, to give that off, to, that's gotta go. We gotta choose. Are we gonna be cool or are we gonna be loving? And, and there's a couple reasons why I think you need to make that choice. One is, you are inevitably on a path away from cool. Believe me, I used to be cool. It, now I, I go to bed at like 9.30. I have a minivan. I live in the suburbs. This is your future. Look at me. Any clothes I have that are halfway decent, my wife picked out. I'm, Chucks are okay. I was mine. But, but listen, you're, you're, on a, you're on a super highway away from cool, right? Gravity wins. <laughs> ugliness wins. Like, all of you will eventually live in Queen Creek with five kids and go to Gateway. I just know how it's happened. This is just, and so you go, no, I, no, you're away from that. So the reason I bring that up is that's fleeting. And you know, you know how superficial that is. It's the reason why when you encounter someone who isn't all that cool, but they love, they're so attractive. You've had that before in a teacher, in a coach, or in a pastor, or in a leader, or in someone that really invested in you. And they were different than you, and they didn't like all the things you like, and, but you knew they loved you, and there is something irresistible about that. The guy that comes to mind for me with that is Jim Mullins, one of the leaders here. He's no Jim. Jim is not trying to be cool, but he's trying to love. And it is life-changing to be around that guy. And we know that. But loving that way requires a new kind of humility, a new kind of love, a new kind of willingness to die to self. So there's some competition. But number four, there's the culmination of love. Where are we going to get this ability to do it, right? We've said, we just feel crushed. We feel overwhelmed by how high this call is. Love even, even your enemy. Like all the time, giving yourself, substituting yourself, pouring yourself out. That's tiring. That's impossible. And it is impossible. And that's both the good news and the bad news. It's, it's bad news because you see that God calls you to a standard you could not meet. And therefore, you face his judgment for falling short. That's what the Bible calls sin. Because all of our love has a mercenary quality to it. I'll love you if, I'll love you when, if I get this back. Right? We pick and choose our relationships based on who fills our tanks and what we like. That's how all of our relationships, it's just inevitable. But it's, it's good news too. Because it drives you to a place the only place where you can get a love like God's calling you to have. See, what if, what if we could be loved by someone that didn't 
need our love in return? What if we could be loved by somebody so generous and so radical and so full that he could pour himself out and pour himself out and pour himself out even if he got nothing in return? What if we could be loved like that? Could it fill us in such a way that maybe we could have the kind of love like that? I think it can. And that person is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, the Trinity, the eternally existing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always existing in a community of love. Now listen, I know that the Trinity is difficult to explain and it's difficult to understand, but one thing that you want and need to know is if you value love, you need to believe in a God of the Trinity. Because a unipersonal God can't love Unless he creates something and then he's, he's creating something only to fill, to fill a deficiency in him. But a tri-personal God, a triune God, the God of the Bible, has always existed in this kind of selfless, giving, gracious, generous, big-hearted love. Always deferring credit. Always giving another person grace. And that God came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. He loved us so much that he took on flesh and he moved into the neighborhood and he lived among us and he showed us what this kind of love could be like. And he set a standard that we would never be able to live up to. And he showed us that someone can live a righteous, a perfectly righteous, a perfectly loving life. And he did that on our behalf. And that he loved us so much so that even when we hated him, even when we killed him, even when we mocked and reviled him, that love drove him to the cross. Where with open arms, he welcomes us. He greets us. This is the Love. This is the hospitality of Jesus. Do you know that love? Has that love become real to you? If you're here and you don't know that love, I I hope you'll talk with somebody after the service. There will be people here in the time of response to pray with and to talk to. I hope you'll talk to them about that. If you're here and and you already know the Lord, maybe the thing that's kept you from being able to sacrificially give yourself over and over, even in small ways, is that that truth has become stale or become routine. Would you be reminded again that Jesus invites you? He welcomes you to himself. And would that so change your life that you could love and serve others in that way? Let's pray.